Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, one of the channels in New Books Network. I'm your host, Victoria Lepashvu, and here um, we are here today with Dr. Mary Augusta Brazelton to talk about her latest book, Mass Vaccination, Citizens' Bodies and State Power in Modern China, published by Cornell University Press in 2019. Welcome, Dr. Brazelton. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And um, before, you know, I, I, I start with questions and everything that we do here, I also have to say that um, this is a very, um, um, that, you know, it's a, it's a very exciting interview because this book not only uh, rests in new books um, um, network for East Asian studies, but it's also in science and technology studies. So, you know, we, we can talk for um, a larger audience and that's very exciting to me. Uh, and I'm sure it is for you too, Dr. Brazelton. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. So um, before anything else, um, let me ask you, um, you know, a few questions to for us, the listeners and, and myself to, to get to know you and your work a little bit better. So could you please tell us how you came to this project? You know, what got you interested in vaccinations, you know, public health and biopolitics in China? That's a great question, a very big one. And <laughs> I think I'd have to say that this project uh, and these interests really began with a set of photographs. Uh, So this book started life as a PhD dissertation at Yale. And as a graduate student in a program for the history of science and medicine, uh, who also had some language training in Chinese, I knew that I wanted to write my dissertation about the history of medicine and public health in China in some capacity, but I wasn't really sure how to narrow that focus. Um, I was very fortunate, though, in that at this time, uh, a scholar from Cambridge, uh, Leon Rasha, was actually visiting my department. Uh, and Leon had spent quite a lot of time at the Needham Research Institute uh, in Cambridge and encouraged me to take a look at a book Uh, by the founder of that institute, the Cambridge sinologist uh, and historian of science, Joseph Needham. 
the book was called Science Outpost, and it was basically a compilation of Needham's experiences working as uh, an administrator in China during the Second World War. Uh, Needham had taken a lot of photos during this time, uh, traveling around various parts of unoccupied China, and one in particular caught my eye um, of people sitting around a table uh, filling uh, ampules with uh, vaccines and sera in an institution called the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau in Kunming in southwest China. Uh, and that photo is actually in the book uh, in chapter yes. four on page 98. Um, yeah. I couldn't help but include it. Um, Absolutely. But that's important because, yeah, um, as I was reading um, this book, this marvelous kind of account of Needham's experiences, having studied China and then finally going there and, um, you know, meeting many people involved in the sciences there, um, you know, his survey of uh, this institute um, and his photographs of it really posed a lot of interesting questions. I wanted to know, you know, who were these people um, gathered around this table uh, packaging these vaccines in Syria? What kinds of materials were they actually using? Because the photo really highlights the kind of material equipment that's necessary for the production of things like vaccines in Syria. What were they doing in a small provincial capital in southwest China, Kunming being the capital of Yunnan province. And I just wanted to know so much more about the photo, the circumstances of its production, um, and uh, really the conditions that had given rise to a vaccine in Syria Institute being um, in this location in southwest China. And that really launched me on this uh, voyage to lots of archives um, and into these questions of um, what it means to talk about public health and biopolitics in China. Absolutely. And I think it's really, really fascinating the, the amount of, of archival work that went into the book. It's more than impressive. And I will have a question later on about methodology and, you know, access to, to all these places, which I'm sure it wasn't easy over the years. And um, also about the figures, right, that um, that uh, kind of stand out in this work for of mass vaccination and the production of vaccines, um, because it does seem that um, you know these um, public bureaus and institutes do revolve around certain um, certain people, right? That kind of yeah. um, worked for um, and uh, pushed them uh, forward. But before that, um, I, I just want to mention that the book is comprised of seven chapters, um, plus the introduction and an epilogue. And um, it is very, very well constructed and very well designed. And um, each chapter advances the information provided before it. So, you know, you're never lost in the book. You know, you have everything you need on every page. And um, that's, um, you know, you, you never lose track of details, dates, names, the types of concurring epidemics, because sometimes, you know, um, that can be a little bit confusing, but, you know, everything is clear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, in the introduction, you argue for the consideration of uh, vaccinations and mass uh, for vaccination and mass vaccination to be um, uh, to be more clear um, as a means of political control, as well as a measure of public health. And then, moreover, on page one, uh, you, you make the case that vaccines became uh, medical technologies of governance that bound together the individual and the collective, the experts and the uneducated, the authorities and the citizens, right, to, to end the quote. So this clearly puts mm -hmm. forward the scope of the book. And I'd like to invite you to tell, a little, tell us a little bit more about the keywords and the key arguments um, in, in this uh, introduction. 
Well, first of all, thank you for those very kind words, uh, which really mean a lot uh, from, from readers. And secondly, yeah, I think there are a couple of key terms and key arguments to stress at this point. I think one question of definition that really drove the project for me, especially early on, was simply thinking about what it means to actually establish mass vaccination as opposed to perhaps just giving lots of people a vaccine against a disease, what actually defines systems of mass vaccination? Um, And that was on my mind as I started kind of working out the strategy of essentially following one basic practice, immunization, against a variety of diseases in this one uh, kind of polity of China ruled by multiple regimes over um, most decades of the 20th century. And thinking about that definition of mass vaccination um, from a sort of perspective of global health or the history of international health yields one kind of definition. So in the field of global health, the story of mass immunization in China is very much a post-1949 story of uh, events in the People's Republic of China after its founding in that year. So if you look at reports of the World Health Organization, for example, from the 1970s, when the WHO was attempting to um, determine uh, the state of smallpox uh, vaccination around the world, um, then you see WHO experts like D.A. Henderson, Frank Fenner, and others essentially agreeing on the consensus that China's eradication of smallpox happened during the early People's Republic of China over the course of the 1950s and early 1960s, largely as a result of mass vaccination programs. And Mm -hmm. These were some of the early reports that I read when I was starting to get into the project and I started to ask, well, how could this have happened? How do we understand mass vaccination as something that results in about 512 million people getting one vaccine against one disease over uh, a little more than a decade? And that's really what kind of led me on all this archival and other research um, to one of the arguments that I hope to make in the book. Um, that mass vaccination conceived as uh, a set of people, materials, and systems that supported the production of immunity against diseases at a population level, that concept wasn't totally a product of uh, simply the People's Republic of China, but it actually had important origins earlier in Chinese 20th century uh, under the Republic of China, Um, especially during the years of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Um, And that's kind of a basic point to make um, that kind of comes out of the archives. But I think the second point that goes along with it, the one that kind of gains a bit more theoretical traction, hopefully, is that over those key mid-century decades of the kind of development and articulation of those systems, I think we do see the Republic and then the People's Republic asserting increasing responsibility for vaccinating people as a means of accumulating power over life, what we might call biopower in the Foucauldian framework. Um, In some ways, this is often construed as um, asserting uh, the power to protect life, but it can also be read as asserting the power to control life. Um, So in a way, what I'm talking about is the way in which the act of vaccination, um, in particular state-sponsored vaccinations, as those grew in number and scope over the 20th century, um, that act brings the power of the state to bear upon individual bodies 
in a way that consolidates the power of the state um, in new and really interesting ways. And that point has a couple of consequences that I'll kind of address really quickly. Um, one of these is uh, that the state reckoned with mass vaccination as a set of large technological systems of cultivation, preservation, and distribution of immunizations. Um, it's only when you think about it in terms of large technological systems that um, it's possible to establish and expand uh, systems of mass vaccination. Um, and doing that in turn indicated the establishment of uh, modern medical infrastructures that could themselves contribute to the power of the state over life. So a part of this story is kind of the building up of technological capacities for mass vaccination. Um, conversely, mass vaccination provided a basis upon which Republican and communist administrations were able to promote commitments to modern science. And this is something that we see working out in interesting ways in uh, the post-1949 era in particular, as the People's Republic of China especially built its capacity to record and surveil states of immunity. Immunization systems then became technologies of governance and administration in really interesting ways. Um, and another consequence of the state assuming this kind of responsibility uh, to vaccinate its people uh, was to bind the people of China into increasingly strong obligations to submit to the orders of the central government. Receiving vaccines that were sponsored and mandated by the state and thereby possessing bodily immunity against infectious diseases became part of what it meant to be born in China. So if you look at sources, especially from uh, the 1950s, then we see emerging the idea that it's a marker of being a good citizen or a good uh, kind of resident of China to comply with vaccination mandates. Um, and here I drew on work by Adriana Petrina, um, as well as others, to think about concepts of biological citizenship as forms of national belonging in which claims are made on a biological basis uh, to things like rights and care. Um, there are, I think, issues with directly transposing ideas like that to the particular context that I'm looking at, in part because the early 1950s were a time when definitions of things like citizenship um, became quite mutable um, in interesting ways. But I do think it's a time when we see the biological taking on practical weight um, for definitions of um, citizenship and being Chinese during the early People's Republic. So I think those are some of the kind of consequences of the bigger points that I kept returning to over the course of my research. Absolutely. And I think the um, all of this also, you know, is in conversation with um, how how China is perceived and carves a space for itself in the international medical community and, you know, underlines also the collaboration between uh, different different countries, also, you know, from the 30s, 40s and, and so on. And I was very very pleased to actually see that there were a few countries from the, the former Eastern Bloc that had very, very vigorous co collaboration with China in terms of, you know, exchanging vaccines and kind of um, having this almost under under the wraps type of, um, um, of collaboration that mm. we don't hear or we don't see necessarily being um, something that would come from, you know, the WHO's um, Alma Ata right conference or would yes. come from yeah. you know so there's so much to absolutely to and I think that actually yeah mm -hmm. yeah no sorry go I was ahead. just gonna yeah. say um 
No worries. Um, I was just going to say, I think that's actually one of the most exciting areas for new research in the history of medicine going forward is thinking about the socialist world and different transnational and transregional connections um, in the history of medicine and especially in international health in the 20th century. So it's a very exciting area um, to be thinking about at this moment. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I'm very excited about it. And I hope our listeners um, share the same shame, uh, same uh, excitement. And, um, you know, you, we mentioned uh, archival work and, um, you know, all, all sorts of, uh, of places where we find this information. And, um, you know, it's, it's very exciting for us. But, you know, uh, would you would you like to say a little bit more about the challenges and, and you know, the the good things, right, that come out of this <laughs> impressive number of sources and institutional context that you had to navigate, you know, in Europe, in Asia, in in United States, um, you know, how this this jive together. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I was extremely fortunate to have all kinds of institutional privileges that allow me to have the time and the funding to go to so many places. Um, so, for example, um, a pre-dissertation grant enabled me to go to Shanghai and Kunming and Chongqing very early on in my research process. Um, and that really, really helped me structure the project, think about how I wanted to approach it, gave me a sense of the kinds of sources that were available in different archives. Likewise, um, I had a graduate research fellowship from the National Science Foundation um, that gave me the time and space to be able to go to China for a year and do uh, the archival work. So I was tremendously fortunate in all kinds of ways. Um, and of course, that doesn't mean that there weren't challenges uh, as well as benefits to being able to go to these different sites. Um, Constraints on the kind of archival work I could do in China shaped my approach from the beginning, as it has for lots of people. Um, I began my graduate studies around the time that the number two historical archives in Nanjing um, were kind of closed for a long period of time. Um, so in a sense, from the beginning, I was really interested in working on um, kind of a period of 20th century Chinese history that might look more closely at for instance, the Second Sino-Japanese War um, that might involve looking at a different archival base that took me to local and provincial um, collections in Southwest China. Um, and I should say I was not at all the only person uh, doing this. There were lots of other uh, colleagues and friends they had at the time, uh, and we all kind of shared um, materials and information, which was really lovely. Um, and so I think, you know, there were lots of ways in which constraints were ultimately productive. Um, and I was especially happy to start thinking about kind of regional archives in Yunnan province in particular, because I think reading the literature, there were still a lot of interesting question marks for me about the significance of Southwest China um, in kind of modern Chinese history. Um, and so that was something I was quite happy to kind of turn towards. Um, Another challenge, I think, was perhaps conceptual, um, and this was related to, in some ways, the benefits of having access to a variety of different sources. Given so many different primary source materials, how might you account for the conditions in which these materials were produced? How do you stitch together a coherent narrative if you're looking at the League of Nations on the one hand, and you know, Wei Shengshu, um, Public Health Administration records in China on the other? 
And of course, this is a universal research question that I think everybody has to deal with in their own way. Um, but it meant that I had to think very carefully about each document that I looked at, you know, how do the conditions in which this document was produced um, matter to how I think about it and how I read it. Um, in some cases, this entailed particularly um, strong burdens to um, think about the context of the literature. So for example, with the material from the early PRC, looking at things like propaganda, radio broadcasts or posters, um, I uh, found the work of Sigrid Schmaltzer and Amanda Smith really useful in terms of thinking about how to read propaganda uh, materials carefully to understand the messages that they might have. Um, and then in addition to that, I found myself thinking a lot about the particular nature of uh, Chinese archives that I was using, that I was uh, looking at. Um, that's in part because some things were off limits. Um, I was very, very lucky um, insofar as the archivists that I worked with were um, very, very kind uh, and very helpful. Um, but sometimes I couldn't look at, for example, personal files. Um, and so I had to think about kind of how to approach those kinds of constraints. Um, but also I think um, there was an interesting question in terms of the disciplinary expectations of the history of science. Um, as I mentioned, I was writing uh, the dissertation within a history of science medicine program. I now teach uh, in a department for the history and philosophy of science. And I think most historians of science are used to reading and privileging certain kinds of archives and primary source materials. So, you know, the laboratory notebooks of Pasteur or Darwin's networks of correspondence. Um, even though those aren't necessarily the kinds of materials that are kept in, say, the Yunnan Provincial Archives um, or other kinds of archives that I was looking at. Them. And uh, there's actually a very good piece on this question of sources in the history of science by Sujit Sivasundram, a colleague of mine at Cambridge, um, in a recent issue of the journal ISIS. Um, so really that piece and the broader questions that I had focused on the idea of what do you do when most of what you're looking at is, you know, a speculative plan, perhaps, or a list of laboratory equipment that is very interesting on its own merits, but how does it actually speak to a broader narrative? Um, and so that really was something that I found myself returning to as I traveled to various archives, not just in China, but also looking at the French colonial collections in France, looking at the League of Nations archives in Geneva. Um, and I think hopefully those questions ended up informing my narrative, especially insofar as one of the arguments that I make in the later chapters is that we see the state's capacity to record information about immunization increasing along with its actual capacity to vaccinate against diseases like smallpox, typhoid, and cholera. And so that um, question of the nature of the sources um, is something that I keep coming back to and collecting in, in my work. Absolutely. And I think we, uh, I mean, one, one reason for which I, I, I asked this question is um, because, you know, the, among the listeners and, you know, myself included, we, um, you know, th these questions are, are formative at the beginning of a career or, you know, right after grad school or at the beginning of grad school. And, you know, um, there are m multiple interests that might um, a, a, such an answer might serve. So uh, it's always interesting and important, right, to, to talk about how we 
um, how we approach these documents and you know how do you what do you do when you enter an archive you're you know you're fortunate enough you got into it so then what do you do right and um, And I think that's actually um that's something else that's worth noting is you know for uh my part I know that whenever I go to an archive I've got this overwhelming sense that you know I have to make every day count um because I've come so far and you know there's so much that's been invested in getting me to this point um, yeah. that, you know, in a sense that can almost be an enemy because you get so worried about finding the perfect set of documents, um, that it's actually probably better in some ways to just kind of look over the mulu, the catalogs, think about kind of the bigger picture. Anyway, that's just a side note. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, I mean, we all have stories of, uh, you know, we get into the archive and then, you know, the, the pen doesn't work. You need a pencil, not a pen, you, need, you know, <laughs> like all, all of that. But, oh, yeah. um, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, there's no electricity or whatever, you know, things like that. Uh, exactly. So, yeah. um, so, you know, um, uh, with, with that in mind, I think we, um, we get to this idea that, um, you know, mass vaccination, uh, and immunization became, um, you know, uh, became to exist, um, in, in China, right, um, right at the beginning of the 20th century, right in the first half. And, I think chapter one paints this this background very well, and also it brings into discussion the development of microbiology as a discipline in China. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, going back to a little bit to the idea of these uh, these figures, uh, important people that moved the discipline and moved the um, the coming into being of vaccines and and immunization as we know it today. Um, I was wondering whether you know you could mention a little bit about um, about these and you know the historical conditions at the time that enabled these people or not right to um, to uh, materialize their plans they had from the very, very beginning. Certainly. In many ways, the main character of the book, so to speak, is probably the figure Tang Keifan, um, this uh, individual who was at the top of his class to graduate from the Xiangyang Medical College in Hunan that was affiliated with Yale, um, who did postdoctoral training at Peking Medical College in Harvard. Um, who ended up at the helm of this institute that I studied, the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau, um, which took on primary responsibility for the production of vaccines in Syria and China during and after the war. Uh, So in some ways, he becomes a central figure as somebody who um, eventually took on this leading role. But even uh, earlier than that, in the early 20th century, before the outbreak of war, um, was operating at uh, very high, if not the highest levels of the field of bacteriology and immunology as they were coalescing. So this is somebody who works with Henry Dale, um, Nobel laureate in London on research, um, who's involved in a global community of microbiology. Um, And Tang is perhaps exceptional um, in the work that he does and the kind of research that he um, is publishing on. But he's not the only Chinese researcher at all who was involved in the development of microbiology as a discipline in China, of course. Um, And I make the point in the book that in the 1920s and 30s, microbiology in China comprised a fairly small community whose members had gone to the same schools and worked in the same places. Um, So we see many uh, going to the American Ivy League, to Columbia and Harvard, figures like Xia Shaowen, 
Chen Zhongxian, uh, Lin Peiting, Yu He, and so on. Um, and these figures, although they have training in these locations, they are also training in China, again, at the famous Peking Union Medical College. Um, and so what we see in the broader context of the Chinese sciences is a pretty strong affiliation with the Anglo-American educational tradition, which isn't necessarily so obvious. In the history of medicine in China more broadly, uh, there's increasing interest and attention given to the many Chinese students who went to Japan um, in the early 20th century, especially to study medicine, um, as well as to the role of overseas Chinese in the study and practice of medicine. Um, and that's something that my colleague Wayne Soon um, is particularly um, interested in. But the figures that kept occurring um, and the sources that I was looking at in terms of people who were working on bacteriology and virology, even before they necessarily identified with those disciplines, they tended to kind of operate in this ambit of Anglo-American medical research. Um, and so we see kind of that um, relatively elite kind of professional community informing the figures who then um, embark on processes of professionalization in uh, the 1910s, 20s, and early 30s. So thinking of the historical conditions, um, you know, the background against these figures are working, they're translating terms, they're setting up journals and professional associations, they're traveling abroad to work with colleagues, even during a period when China itself is undergoing, of course, tremendous upheaval. Um, given the 1911 revolution, followed by the um, emergence of regional militarism and what's called the warlord era um, through till the end of the 1920s and the consolidation of nationalist power. Um, this was also a time of change uh, for the relationship between laboratory science and public health. And so if we're thinking about people like Tang Feifang, Xia Shaowen, um, if we're thinking about the kind of broader um, scientific and medical communities that there may be um, a part of, the kinds of things that are happening in the cities of China during this period, um, then we see kind of interesting trends and processes. Um, and some of this material is quite well covered. So Ruth Rigowski, for example, has discussed the emergence of hygienic modernity, of practices of uh, public health and hygiene as expressions of modernity in the treaty ports of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, at the very end of the Qing dynasty, we see the Qing becoming involved in public health with the onset of the Manchurian plague crisis in 1910 and 1911. Um, but what's interesting is to think about the ways in which laboratory science of the kind that people like Tang Feifan and Xie Shaowen are doing um, doesn't necessarily have such a great impact on public health. So using the example of um, the 1910-1911 uh, plague um, in Northeast China, um, what we see there in terms of key interventions for management of that particular epidemic of pneumonic plague is harsh quarantine and things like mass um, burning of corpses of those of, of victims of the plague. We don't necessarily see, you know, the use and implementation of a vaccine, for example. Um, of course, this is another episode that's been very well studied by figures like Sean Lay and Christos Santeris. Um, but I think that's kind of the interesting point there even though figures like Wulienda, the very prominent kind of doctor and plague fighter in his words, um, are 
um, kind of producing uh, sort of medical theater of uh, microscopic inquiry, the key intervention remains very harsh quarantine um, and kind of other interventions of that kind. Um, and then, you know, even through the 1910s, um, we do see investment in new institutions that actually employed um, experts in microbiology to produce uh, drugs as well as vaccines and serous. So over the course of the 1910s into the 1920s, uh, we see the articulation of institutions and organizations um, to address epidemic control and prevention using new forms of expertise. And again, the institute that I'm most interested in, the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau, um, is established in 1919, um, and it quickly takes up uh, headquarters at the Temple of Heaven in Beijing. Um, so taking on a really interesting, I think, possibly symbolic significance. Um, it was established as a regional organization in response to plague outbreaks in North China at the time. And so we see kind of regional organizations eventually uh, taking on national significance um, with the consolidation of the Nationalist Party's power. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And um, yeah, and just to, um, if I may kind of interject a little bit of a comment uh, here, I think, um, you know, the the book and, and all the, the, the research that went into it also provides a, um, um, you know, a, a complementation in a way of uh, what we know so far about the exchanges between China and Japan in terms of of medicine and in terms of, you know, all these students going to Japan to study and, you know, kind of uh, seeing this um, as an opportunity to to discover new new subjects and new disciplines. And then, you know, when we think about uh, microbiology and we think about the ways in which the institutions you mentioned were founded and started to, to find their institutional identity, right, um, have this uh, collaboration with um, with the UK, with the US, you know, with with other other countries as well from Europe. So the the picture mm-hmm. of these collaborations is is definitely more um, more complicated, more nuanced. But also now we know more because of your book. So uh, it's, oh, thank it's you. Quite yeah. Sure. And um, you know that you you mentioned that the, the work of um, uh, from the laboratories, right, and the ways it, it connects with, with global public health and public health in general. And um, I think that's where chapter two comes into place and because it, it offers an in-depth analysis of the medical infrastructure of hospitals and clinics 
that existed in Yunnan uh, and then their role in the development of a vaccination scheme that was meant for universal coverage. Um, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I was curious to know a little bit more about how this infrastructure looked like and how it was perceived by the locals uh, or, you know, the newly arrived doctors from China's East Coast who were basically refugees, right, from, from the war. Yeah. And uh, also yeah. doctors from, from the U.S. and, and U.K. Who, who went there for exchange, right? Yeah. So I think what's really interesting about... Um, this material is the way in which you do see, uh, as you say, kind of refugee physicians and researchers who in 1937 um, move from the eastern cities of Beijing and Shanghai and Nanjing um, inland to uh, southwest China, um, fleeing Japanese occupation. Um, So when the nationalist regime moves to Chongqing, uh, a number of administrators um, and industrialists, but also academics and intellectuals go with them to what becomes known as the Dahofan, the hinterland um, that remains unoccupied. And so there's something really fascinating, I think, in that encounter of the kind of researchers and physicians that I've just been describing um, with their own very particular, in many ways, elite kind of background and status, um, what happens when they get to um, Yunnan in particular, and I'll say a bit um, in uh, a minute about kind of why so many of them end up in Yunnan and uh, the city of Kunming. Um, but uh, for now, it's just worthwhile to know that uh, in 1937, we have this migration. And in most of the accounts that I read before I really got into um, the earlier archives, uh, it was striking how uh, Chinese physicians who were moving from the eastern cities, as well as American and European colleagues, um, kind of played up the status of Yunnan um, as this backwards hinterland with very little medical infrastructure. Um, so this kind of view of the Southwest was one of a sort of tabula rasa, where there was very little in the way of public health administration. And that's what I kind of had in mind when I went to uh, some of the archives that I thought could help um, shed light on the situation before 1937. Um, I knew that there had been a strong French presence uh, in Yunnan from the work of Florence Bretella Tabli, who's done a lot of work on the French sphere of influence um, in South China. And she was very, very helpful in pointing me to uh, useful resources. Um, And what I ultimately found was that actually by uh, 1937, there was a network of hospitals and clinics pretty well established in Yunnan. Um, And I believe about seven clinics in the city of Kunming itself. Um, And this network had hybrid origins um, in terms of things like Christian missionary presences. Um, And missionary medicine had, of course, uh, had a very long history um, in many different parts of China. Um, But also in the region of Yunnan in particular, uh, British and French empires had competed um, to establish uh, presences uh, as part of the effort to develop spheres of influence reaching into China from um, colonies in what's now known as Burma or Myanmar and Vietnam. Um, And so medicine was seen as a useful way of cultivating local influence, establishing a hospital or a clinic with a physician who could offer local consultations um, was seen in some cases as a means of 
forwarding the so-called civilizing mission of the colonial enterprise, especially in the French context. Um, and so that's kind of the, the basic narrative of the different kinds of foreign um, figures uh, and influences who are involved. At the same time, uh, this infrastructure actually involved people from a variety of different backgrounds and their uh, efforts to establish various um, medical and public health enterprises in Yunnan were also uh, mediated by um, the various administrations ruling Yunnan, by the warlords Tang Jiao and Long Yun. Um, so it was actually a really fascinating, uh, fascinatingly pluralistic um, space where uh, people from a variety of different backgrounds um, studied uh, methods of Western medicine, um, were involved in giving care of various kinds to local Chinese populations in Kunming and other areas. Um, so, for example, um, the French set up a variety of hospitals. Um, and these, when I say the French, I mean uh, typically military medical officers um, sent north from the French colony of French Indochina. Um, and yet these clinics also involved uh, medical workers uh, who identified as Vietnamese. Um, and in fact, uh, the latter group constituted some of the most significant and lasting figures in uh, French-backed efforts to promote public health and medicine in Yunnan before 1937. Um, vaccination was a part of this infrastructure um, especially in the case of French efforts. Um, and we see smallpox vaccine and uh, the lymph that's necessary for Janarian smallpox vaccine um, being sent to Yunnan from Pasteur Institutes in French Indochina. Um, we also see uh, British efforts as well to introduce Janarian vaccination um, against smallpox. And you can see this in the reports of the British Imperial Maritime Customs Service um, as well, and that's kind of one of, that was a very useful uh, source for this chapter. Um, but again, the regional militarists, uh, the warlords Tan Jiao and Bong Yun, um, were quite important figures in the construction of various health establishments, not only as the chief figures with whom agents of empire sought to curry influence, but also as independent actors who uh, themselves made contributions to the establishment of medical infrastructures in Yunnan. So, for example, um, the militarist Tang Jiao had actually approved a vaccination training center in Kunming in 1914, long before the Republic of China, the national, the nominally national government, provided a central mandate for this kind of work. Um, and later, Long Yun uh, oversaw the establishment of an experimental health station in Kunming. So, um, you know, that was really interesting to explore the ways in which even though Yunnan was a site of competing colonial powers um, that were striving to kind of uh, promote uh, their own particular influence in this region, um, that actually uh, kind of local administrations um, and local militarists uh, exerted quite a lot of agency in terms of sponsoring and establishing public health uh, programs. So that by 1937, when we do see that migration during a time of war, um, there was a medical school um, that offered instruction in the French language um, that had been the result of some uh, French efforts, but which had local um, 
support. And we see uh, kind of local clinics, a network of local clinics and hospitals coming out of that longer history of efforts to um, kind of establish uh, public health enterprises in the region. I think, um, and as you were, you were, you were uh, saying this, I was actually thinking that I was reading the, the numbers, right, and, um, in, in the chapters in the book, right? So 40,000 people were vaccinated or 30,000 people were vaccinated and so on. And actually, I was thinking that those numbers are so much clearer now when we talk about this um, this network right of clinics and the infrastructure that already existed and the the warlords actually helped to to establish because of course you cannot vaccinate 30,000 people you know in in a month or so without all of this actually being in place um, and it doesn't get to be mentioned, right, in, in a lot of documents, um, I guess, mm-hmm. right, in the archives. Mm-hmm. Um, you just get the number, right? So um, yeah. X, X clinic yeah. did this, um, but then it's so so important to have this background information and to, to know what the main local and international actors uh, did and, you know, how they, they played their part in the vaccine development. Um, and that brings us to, to chapter three, um, because we, we, we see how biology becomes a crucial aspect of um, what you call the individual rights and freedoms in wartime China. So um, mm-hmm. I was actually curious about how during the Sino-Japanese War, uh, mass vaccinations and mass immunizations, uh, sorry, vaccination and mass immunization, I'm sorry, um, came to be linked with uh, citizens' rights and uh, free movement. Right, so going from one mm-hmm. one uh, town to another, uh, and and so on. And here uh, I found it really really interesting the um, this um, document called the inoculation certificate. So I was wondering whether you could say a little bit more about these? Yes. So inoculation certificates were introduced to certain cities uh, during the wartime period as a means of surveilling and enforcing efforts uh, at vaccination. Um, And the idea was that transportation uh, was controlled using these certificates so that you couldn't leave a city by rail or boat without having a vaccination card uh, checked, and if you didn't have a card, that then um, left you um, open to the possibility of being vaccinated by force if necessary. Uh, sometimes these controls uh, might be carried out by local governments, but in other cases they were carried out by non-governmental organizations. And that's actually the material that I have the the, the best kind of data for um, is in the project uh, that was mounted by the League of Nations Health Organization in 1937 and 1938. Um, This was a widespread epidemic um, prevention project mounted by the League. Um, It had a set of kind of regional um, uh, foci. And in the case of Xi'an in Northwest China, Um, we see a very strong effort by the League to impose this kind of control on transportation, um, working with local authorities um, to prevent people from leaving Xi'an who had not had a vaccination against cholera. Um, And it was cholera that was kind of the chief uh, concern, um, given that there had recently been, been an epidemic. So there was this question of freedom of movement being checked. Um, And it's worth noting that this was a partial system um, and it was enforced uh, very differently by different individuals. And in the League archives, 
Um, there are actually notes about how some vaccinators are particularly enthusiastic um, and keen to uh, kind of track down anyone who might escape their notice. Um, <laughs> and of course, not everybody is necessarily that um, enthusiastic, shall we say. Um, right. But it did kind of, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was an issue, um, this question of compliance and even resistance. So in the League archives, there are reports of people who escaped or eluded um, efforts to kind of impose transportation checks at borders. Uh, one particularly vexing case was that of truckers, drivers who were transporting goods uh, over the difficult road networks of unoccupied China, um, who might get stopped um, and asked if they'd had a vaccine against cholera. And they'd actually say that they couldn't get a vaccine um, because it would make their arms hurt too much um, and they couldn't do their job of driving. Um, and that kind of excuse given as a reason for not getting a vaccine that, you know, it would hurt too much. That's actually something that gets repeated in a couple of different reports that I that I found. But of course, this was quite frustrating to administrators of the League of Nations Health Organization, um, who were trying to kind of impose vaccinations um, in unoccupied China. Um, because of course, um, if you're thinking about vectors of disease transmission, um, a driver for a transport company who is moving across large uh, amounts of territory is one pretty pretty good disease vector. Um, so, you know, there are lots of ways in which uh, the inoculation certificate system, it was imposed in a very patchwork, incomplete way. Um, but we do see that effort to kind of um, issue these certificates. Uh, and that is a lasting effort. So we see the idea of inoculation certificates returning after the war, after the Civil War, into the 1950s and 60s. It's a really interesting kind of practice uh, for that reason uh, to explore. But there are some ways in which that kind of system has its limits. It doesn't control for things like how frequently you'd had a cholera vaccine. Um, and at the time in 1938, um, the cholera vaccine most widely available then was often given in a series of two or three injections. So simply having a certificate saying that you'd gotten a vaccine didn't necessarily indicate that you um, had a state of immunity against this disease. Um, so there are lots of interesting questions about, you know, the efficacy of the process of the vaccine itself. But I think what's interesting to keep the focus on is how the uneven character of a system like this reveals and comments more broadly on how networks of epidemic prevention in fact grew across the wartime hinterland as kind of chaotic, highly variable patchworks, but with kind of nodes at urban centers like Xi'an, um, like Lanzhou or Guiyang um, or Chongqing. Um, and so we see uh, as well this connection, as you say, between biology, between this individual personal state of immunity and autonomy and the ability to travel, the ability to move from one place to another, being constrained by that biology, even if imperfectly. Right, and it has, um, you know, just to, to um, stretch a little bit the, the comparison um, on my part, I think it, it definitely has its counterparts in, in, you know, present time, because, you know, when you apply for visas or you apply for residency or, you know, all sorts of, of things in a foreign country, you need to provide your vaccination records, right, your certificate that you've been vaccinated in your own country. And then, of course, mm -hmm. 
different countries do not recognize other countries' vaccination procedures, so you need to get it again. Um, so yes. um, <laughs> it's um, yeah. uh, and of course, I mean, you know, the the comparison is, is skewed, but just the idea how how these certificates came to be and how they were used and you know what were the the nodes that they they emerged from is is quite quite fascinating to me uh, to 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 yeah. learn. Yeah, I actually have a um, a vaccination card uh, from the WHO that I got um, when I first started traveling back and forth to China to show that I had had the appropriate vaccinations. Um, and so it's taken on this interesting meaning to me as I've learned more and more about that particular kind of record keeping and form. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. And then, you know, the the digitization of, of very old records, right, that, um, you know, for example, I can't get mine anymore because, um, you know, my, my Romania, my country didn't actually archive them very well. So, you know, it was just old uh, paper. Let's recycle. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but, uh, you know, joke aside, um, I, I really think that Kunming uh, was a very important um, node, right? Pivotal node in the vaccine production. And of course, um, my belief is informed by chapter four, um, and uh, of course, it's it, you know provided the start, um, very important start in mass immunization processes, right? And you mentioned mm-hmm. that the um, the changing relationship between medical sciences, public health, and state building in China uh, led to the formation of a particular immunological community, uh, and this particular community was a product of southwest uh, southwestern China. And um, I was curious about the steps uh, that led to 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 the this the status quo, and why was it that it happened in Kunming, right, and not Lanzhou, for example, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a fascinating counterfactual. Uh, actually, why not Lanzhou? Um, but uh, you know, if we're thinking about the outbreak of war in 1937 disrupting the communities of microbiology that were uh, forming in China that we've talked about, then it's really interesting to contemplate the ways in which moving to Southwest China as part of the wartime migration um, following the nationalist state uh, reconfigured these communities in really fascinating ways. Um, It brought them closer together, in some cases physically and out of necessity, but also brought them into ready contact with American allies and resources. Um, and I mentioned earlier that I would talk a bit about why kind of Kunming, why Yunnan. Um, and we see Kunming emerging as a particular site uh, for not only the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau, um, but also for a variety of other medical schools and institutes to come and make wartime bases. Um, and so we see there then a particular role for Kunming as a city where actually quite a number of refugee student populations went. Most famous of these, of course, is Lianta, um, the Sina Lianta, um, kind of the United uh, Southwest uh, University that John Israel has written about, um, and Suzanne Pepper as well. Um, And so we see Kunming emerging um, and looking particularly attractive to academics and intellectuals during the war for several reasons. Um, We see uh, Kunming as being further away from uh, the front, further away from air raids uh, by the Japanese, uh, which were happening in cities like Chongqing. Um, Kunming uh, was also 
in many ways um, kind of provided links to the world outside China insofar as it was a terminus of the Burma Road, the crucial supply route, which was often blocked and often kind of not necessarily working. Um, but um, despite those issues, it was also a terminus for the hump, the air supply line um, that provided supplies and material um, over the Himalayas from uh, Burma and other sites. And so we see Kunming emerging as attractive for the kind of communications uh, links that it offers, the relative safety, even though Kunming, of course, is also exposed to air raids. Um, we also see an interestingly welcoming political atmosphere and this is something that Pepper um, looks at in a bit more detail, as well as Israel, um, the ways in which uh, Long Yun perhaps welcomed um, those who didn't necessarily always agree with nationalist policies. Um, you know, it's worth thinking about the broader political context of what happens for militarists like Long Yun when the nationalist state suddenly shows up on their doorstep, making its wartime capital in Chongqing that presents interesting kind of questions and tensions in the broader political sphere. Um, but in some cases as well, what I found was that um, personal connections actually mattered quite a lot. In some cases, um, medical schools that had originally been based in Nanjing or Guangzhou uh, ended up making temporary wartime headquarters in Kunming um, because an administrator had a personal connection um, and was going to be able to find facilities for students and uh, for instruction um, in Yunnan in a way that might not be able to happen in Chongqing or Lanzhou or another city. Um, so those are some kind of reasons why I think we see Kunming emerging uh, as um, a center for intellectual life. Um, and medicine and public health emerges as a significant part of work in Kunming, um, in part because of this influx of migrants. Um, the outbreak of war really heightened the need for public health interventions in interesting ways. The large-scale movements of people, such as soldiers, administrators, and refugees, facilitated the spread of disease. Um, and it did this in an area of southwest China where many infectious diseases were already endemic. Um, Carol Benedict has shown how Yunnan is a historic disease well for plague in many ways. Um, and so we see then an imperative for public health work um, to continue. Um, now the Wei Shengshu, the Ministry of Health or the uh, National Health Administration of the National State um, is uh, headquartered during the war at Gelishan outside Chongqing. Um, and so Chongqing remains an administrative center, um, but Kunming is where we see the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau, the primary national institution that takes responsibility for um, the production and distribution of vaccines in Syria, um, being finding its wartime uh, headquarters. So um, the Epidemic Prevention Bureau is in Kunming. And so there's a lot of communication back and forth between Chongqing and Kunming. Um, but uh, given this kind of wartime location, um, you know, we see an imperative to produce vaccines in Syria and to use them as a health intervention to control the epidemic diseases that are threatening the nationalist army and the nationalist people. Um, and just to go in a bit into the details of why vaccination rather than other kinds of health intervention were emphasized, um, vaccination was considered one way to effectively control disease in unoccupied China during the war, 
um, in part because it was something that could be distributed to relatively mobile populations. It didn't necessarily entail expensive and immobile investments in sanitary infrastructures. It was a targeted intervention. Of course, these were kind of idealized views. The reality of actually producing and distributing vaccines across nationalist territory was much, much messier. Um, but we do see that emerging as kind of a particular um, kind of reason for why it becomes necessary for or perceived as necessary for the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau to really um, get to work on producing um, and manufacturing vaccines in large numbers. Um, and in terms of the steps by which we see that work actually having public health consequences, in terms of how we see the emergence of systems of mass vaccination that are seeking to try and immunize as many people as possible against a given disease, um, I think we see that um, on a case-by-case basis with the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau being approached to, to deal with epidemic outbreaks, sometimes by national authorities, but often by local authorities in Yunnan. Um, we see the Bureau responding by manufacturing vaccines, um, often drawing on connections that are transnational in order to produce it. Um, so even though the Bureau was based in Kunming, um, it maintained a pretty steady correspondence with um, other kinds of bacteriological institute in uh, places like India, um, uh, and would receive standard cultures, so materials necessary for producing vaccines from these uh, other organizations. Um, after developing and manufacturing vaccines, the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau would work with local health authorities um, to distribute that vaccine. Um, so this entailed coordination with the uh, public health administrations in Kunming, in Yunnan, but it also drew in other groups, um, like refugee medical students, to actually provide immunizations. And so, um, for example, the student uh, paper of the Tongji Medical College, which had moved to Kunming during the war, uh, makes reference to the activities of its students, um, temporarily based in Kunming, to help distribute vaccines on the part of the Epidemic Prevention Bureau. So, you know, that's why I say in some ways, the move to Southwest China of a variety of experts and students in the biomedical sciences um, as they were emerging. Um, that move through populations uh, together in interesting ways, um, and it also ended up having the result of them working together and working with local health administrators to develop and then distribute vaccines against various diseases. And um, I think also the um, one 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 other detail that um, can can go here is this idea of the national defense, right? So vaccines uh, and mass immunization as a, a way to uh, defend China, right, during the war. Um, yes, and, absolutely. And you know that. Um, that also under underscores this idea that China was not, uh, you know, the Republic of China and then um, the uh, PRC was not necessarily an isolated uh, I entity by all means, right? And yeah. um, I think there's there's um, and you do point point to this um, later in the later chapters, but you know I wanted to punctuate it now a little bit and to say that. Um, right, this this openness that we see through these collaborations is quite important to. Uh, to describe, right, uh, the 20th century mm -hmm. and China, um, 
you know, and how the vaccine is also a little bit uh, co-opted into the idea of of protecting the country, protecting the citizens, and and so on. So I don't know if it was anything you wanted to add to this, um, but you know, I yeah, I yeah. felt I should mention uh, it. <laughs> absolutely, no. I mean, I think the first point about um, kind of vaccination as part of a strategy for national defense. Um, is really significant and important to think about how um, epidemic prevention was a part uh, of uh, kind of military um, kind of approaches. And I think you see that in some of the literature of the time, some of the things that people like Dean Baoshan, um, health administrator, uh, discuss in um, the pieces that they publish. They talk specifically about how Epidemic prevention is something that will benefit the entire population, that will strengthen the war effort. Um, and then along with that, um, you know, I think it's in part because of that imperative of wartime um, development and aid and the war effort that we see really interesting uh, kind of global connections. And, you know, as you were saying, the kind of significance to global public health uh, is really fascinating, in part because we think about we tend to think about China's significance to global public health in terms of really specific institutions um, like the Peking Union Medical College or the Rockefeller Foundation. We tend to think of it in terms of unidirectional aid from, say, the West to China. Um, but there's really so much more to explore in terms of the kind of transnational connections that we see emerging over the course of the 20th century. Um, so, you know, just within the wartime period, um, I've already mentioned the League of Nations Health Organization kind of project, um, you know, the ways in which uh, we see connections to the Hafkin Institute in Mumbai emerging um, as a significant uh, kind of site for Chinese researchers. Um, you know, there are all kinds of other transnational connections that I think are really fascinating to explore. And those connections don't necessarily go away after the Civil War and after the 1949 establishment of the People's Republic, but they do transform in really interesting ways. Um, so maybe I'll pause there. <laughs> sure. And actually, you, you mentioned the Civil War and I was, um, you know, I was thinking like, oh, yes, because Chapter 5 <laughs> actually, uh, right, so uh, mm -hmm. looks at a, a shorter period of time in relation to uh, Chapters 1 to 4, right? so namely 1945 to 49. And actually um, closes in and focuses very, very uh, intensely on the debate about, uh, you know, co coercive immunizations benefits for legitimizing governance and also on the potential connection between microbiology and national reconstruction once the, the Sin uh, Second Sino-Japanese War is, is over. So how did these uh, debates play out during the Civil War and how did the infrastructure built during the Second Sino-Japanese War and before it, right, um, contributed to mm -hmm. a better reach of mass immunization, vaccine production, and better public health initiatives overall? Yeah, so I'll start with um, the point about infrastructure first. Um, it's really interesting to see in sources from this period how health infrastructures established during and before the war take on lasting significance after 1945. So, you know, even though in the immediate wake of the Japanese um, capitulation, we see this kind of scramble to get back to the formerly occupied cities of Beijing and Nanjing and Shanghai, um, we still see um, the infrastructures and the establishments that had been set up during the war remaining and 
holding lasting significance in uh, Southwest China and in uh, kind of unoccupied China um, after 1945. So, you know, in Kunming, we see staff being left behind in the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau's uh, quarters, which have the comma branch of the main organization recentered back in Beijing. We also see attempts to co-opt to the extent that it's possible, the remnants of Japanese hygienic infrastructure established during occupation, um, even though that's very freighted um, in part because of the various um, kind of biological and chemical warfare projects that the Japanese were conducting under the name of epidemic prevention and public health. Um, and so, you know, we see kind of really interesting um, maintenance of the wartime infrastructures, um, even as we also see efforts to take what happened during the war in places like Yunnan and really expand it to a fully nationwide uh, scale. Uh, and one area, I think one source that's perhaps telling is um, the set of speeches um, that have been preserved from the reopening ceremony of the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau um, in, I believe, 1947. Um, the archives of the American Bureau for Medical Aid to China have preserved um, some of the booklets from this reopening ceremony, and they're just really lovely sources. Um, because in reading the speeches of Tang Fei Fan and other um, researchers um, who are involved in the administration of this bureau, um, you can see articulated so clearly desires to establish a fully nationwide network of institutes to foster research on drugs, vaccines, and communicable diseases. And we do see efforts to establish such a nationwide program, although they remain severely limited between 1945 and 49. Um, so for example, we see immunization certificate programs being adopted in certain cities to a limited extent. Um, but there are two issues with this. First, geography, the sheer size of attempting to establish a nationwide network in the midst of uh, wartime um, efforts at reconstruction and emerging civil war and limited funding. Of course, the period after 1945 is one of economic crisis, and that figured in debates over the role that science could play in national reconstruction. Um, and we see this quite keenly, I think, with discussions of the BCG vaccine, the bacille connect vaccine against tuberculosis. Um, there are a number of uh, articles that are published in medical journals and more popular journals during this period that framed tuberculosis um, as an economic problem insofar as it weakened the labor force. Tuberculosis was a very common um, disease throughout the mid 20th century in China. Uh, and uh, the argument that was put forward in a lot of these pieces was that it was hurting the economy um, because it was basically producing an ill and weak uh, kind of labor force. And the argument that was put forth by physicians and researchers was to use the BCG vaccine against tuberculosis to ameliorate economic crisis by strengthening the labor force, um, by preventing this disease, allowing the people to work to their full economic potential, so to speak. Um, and so that rhetoric is really quite interesting, even though there were problems with the development and implementation of the vaccine. BCG um, is a difficult vaccine to administer in part because you have to test um, for reactions to tuberculin before you give it. So you can only give it to a limited um, number of people. Um, it's also quite difficult to give um, 
kind of just in terms of how the vaccine works. Still, the view of epidemic disease as an economic problem, as a problem insofar as it harmed um, the labor force, was a view that I think carried over into the early People's Republic um, and the way in which um, the Chinese Communist Party approached questions of epidemic prevention and control. And it was against this kind of background um, that the People's Liberation Army started consolidating power in Northeast China and other parts of China. Um, And as it did so, it started offering immunization and stressing strategies of persuasion rather than coercive methods. Um, And so that's kind of where we see these questions of, you know, coercion versus persuasion. One of the things that appears quite quickly in CCP rhetoric is this emphasis on what's called chuofu. Um, So, you know, not necessarily forcing people to get a vaccine, but using education, using propaganda productively in that sense. And that continues very much right into to the PRC in the mm-hmm. but you know in a way yeah. that is reinforced by by new new health laws that come come into effect after 1949, um, and then mm-hmm. the surveillance practices uh, from the war period become normalized right as you mentioned, and then yeah. also the the politicized immunization campaigns become stronger uh, right because of uh, economic reasons because of state formation. And, and strengthening reasons and so on. So, um, you know, um, this this being part of chapter six, and as we move on with the conversation, I wanted to um, um, actually ask you to expand a little bit on the events and the impacts uh, on the perception of immunization as a closely connected um, tie between civil and political identities that happens right in the in in the PRC in mm-hmm. after forty nine. Yes. So first to talk about laws and legislation, um, I think there are a couple of important events that happen in 1950, um, one being the first National Health Work Conference, which is setting out kind of guiding principles for public health and hygiene policy in the new People's Republic of China, which includes serving uh, the workers, using mass mobilization as a method of public health work, prioritizing prevention and preventive medicine, and uniting Western and Chinese medicine. And in terms of these kind of guiding principles, uh, immunization uh, as a preventive strategy that often entailed uh, mass mobilization and served large populations, vaccinations seem to fit into this set of guiding principles rather nicely. Um, and so we see quite early on vaccines being enshrined in various health laws. Uh, that stipulate vaccination as a tool of seasonal disease prevention. Um, And so we see then things like an order that doctors of Chinese medicine be trained in generating vaccination against smallpox so that they can help with vaccination campaigns against smallpox. Um, We see an emphasis in this legislation on using propaganda, education, and persuasion to convince people to get vaccinated against infectious diseases But we also see uh, included the point that if this kind of persuasive education uh, didn't have any effect, that forcible methods were to be used to inoculate against infectious diseases. Um, And so we see already just within the kind of um, legislation, interesting points, the fact that a clause like that is present um, might suggest that uh, some 
people did see or would have seen vaccination against smallpox and other diseases as strange. Um, it might have suggested a certain degree of anticipation of resistance. Um, that's certainly something that we also see in propaganda of the time. So radio broadcasts from the early 1950s um, often set up kind of dramatic scenarios that um, kind of present characters who are vaccine skeptics in different ways. So a very common scenario might be for um, a radio play to have one character be an elderly gentleman um, who's having a conversation with one of his friends um, about how he doesn't need to get a vaccine because he's already lived for so long without getting sick. Um, so why bother? Um, and this conversation gets overheard by a young physician who kind of presents um, the face of the new China that's emerging and explains to um, these elderly gentlemen why it would be good to get a vaccine. Um, of course, these are all fictional scenarios, but they're designed to appeal to popular listeners and, um, that kind of suggests perhaps the kinds of fears and concerns that listeners might have. Um, so, um, you know, while being aware of the particular situated nature of things like a radio broadcast, um, we do see perhaps anticipation of certain kinds of attitudes towards vaccination um, and towards the particular laws that are enacted to um kind of promote and even enforce immunization against infectious diseases. And alongside that, I think, um, you know, in kind of policies and in things like handbooks, uh, instructing vaccination teams on how to do their work, um, we see the importance of surveillance and recording um, and record keeping um, really being stressed. So new systems of record-keeping, surveillance, and accountability accompanied the implementation of uh, public health policies that mandated vaccination. Um, and this is something that I think fits into a really strong literature by people like Tom Lam on social surveys or Arnab Ghosh um, on statistics, Tom Mulaney on uh, census taking. Um, you know, this is something that I think is part of a broader context of the early People's Republic um, but in terms of vaccination and public health, it's fascinating to see um, the ways in which vaccination records start to take on a lot more texture. Um, and some of this, as I say, is really quite um, strongly directed from the top down through things like vaccinators handbooks that really stress the necessity of taking records um, on the part of vaccination teams. Um, but, you know, you also see it in the archives um, and most of my sources uh, here are coming from the Kunming Municipal Archives, looking at um, the records of their um, patriotic hygiene campaign uh, vaccination uh, programs. I'll say a bit more about um, the patriotic hygiene campaigns in a minute, but um, it's just really worth noting how in records from the early 1950s, you start to see the use of classifying markers such as gender and age you see individual immunization statuses being uh, tracked in a way that um, doesn't necessarily appear in the documents I was able to look at in uh, the pre-1949 period. Now, these kinds of records weren't always taken in the way that was directed from provincial or national administrations. Um, in a lot of the records that I looked at, the vaccinators had actually crossed out the categories um, that they had been given. So the age uh, kind of categories in which they were supposed to mark, you know, how many people they had vaccinated. 
um, they would kind of adjust the forms that they were given um, to suit their own purposes. Um, so it's quite difficult in some ways to actually make data from different drives commensurable. Um, but just the fact that that kind of texture exists is in itself quite revealing and quite fascinating. Um, but, you know, we also see other means in which vaccination record keeping is integrated with other forms of accountability. Um, so we see household vaccinations being recorded in household register books being incorporated into the WHO system um, in different ways, um, being carried out through door-to-door surveys. Um, and we also see, again, the vaccine certificate system um, appearing in terms of controls on travel, although um, discussions of it in the post-1949 period tend to attribute that system to Soviet precedent um, rather than uh, any other, which is kind of uh, fascinating in and of itself. Again, the 1950s are, of course, a period of uh, Sino-Soviet alliance. Um, yeah. And it is that broader geopolitical configuration that gives rise to the patriotic hygiene campaigns, which actually form the backbone for many of the immunization drives uh, of the early 1950s. Um, so the patriotic hygiene campaigns um, are a program that emerges out of the Korean War uh, and uh, China's involvement in the Korean conflict uh, on the part of North Korea against South Korea and the United States. Um, and as Ruth Rogowski and Albert Cowdery have explored, um, these campaigns actually respond to a very specific allegation on the part of China and North Korea uh, that the United States was conducting bacteriological warfare in North Korea and Northeast China. Um, so as I say, Cowdery and Rogowski have done a lot of work on that particular kind of story, but it gave rise to, and it offered justification for um, a set of nationwide hygienic campaigns. Um, and again, it's quite interesting because it harkens back to the wartime use of vaccines in a military context as a strategic uh, means of protecting the health of a national population. Um, but here being uh, used in a context that is um, extremely and vocally anti-American. Um, and so it's really in that context that we see the establishment of these new patriotic hygiene campaigns um, that are kind of repeated, that are involved in mass inoculation work against things like smallpox, but also cholera and typhoid fever. And also it, uh, sorry, um, I wanted to interject, but I didn't want to. Okay. Um, so I think one another um, important thing was um, this um, way more intense um, collaboration or, you know, even a little bit antagonistic type of, of relationship that, um, say, the, the Soviet Union and, you know, China, P PRC and, you know, the Eastern Bloc, United States and, you know, um, had, right, after the 1950s in terms of health and in terms of, of you know, public health. Um, and uh, you know the the WHO coming into coming into place and actually praising right the the PRC success model of public health mm -hmm. um, before and after right Almata's uh, conference yeah. um, and also here we uh, in, in in chapter six we also uh, seven I'm sorry in chapter seven we see this mm -hmm. uh, this notion of medical diplomacy that that starts to come into play um, and it's really important to to kind of use as a lens to uh, see the relationship between these uh, these power blocks. 
And, um, you know, I was, um, I was thinking, and I am sure the listeners would want to know more about the, the most important aspects of, of this period, right? So after 1960s, mm -hmm. and what can be said about the relationship between medical diplomacy, global health, uh, and local epidemiological conditions that determine citizens' position uh, in relation to the state? Yes, so that's a, a meaty question. So I'm really glad um, to urge this and to think about this chapter, which in some ways sort of broadens the scope of the discussion uh, and uh, thinks a bit about the implications of some of the um, narratives that I had identified for this question of China's role in global health. Uh, because we do see over the course of the 60s and especially the 1970s, the PRC rising to global prominence as a model for international health. And there were a number of reasons for this, one of which was that the PRC actively promoted its rural health systems around the world. Uh, and uh, when I say it's rural health systems, as promoted by the PRC, this typically included the training of the well-known barefoot doctors, these paraprofessional medical workers who gave basic clinical care in village settings while also contributing to agricultural labor, but they also included the establishment of clinics, the combination of Western and traditional medicine in different cases. And as Miriam Gross has pointed out, it's really worth noting that these were not necessarily the most prominent features of public health as it was practiced in the PRC. And she explores this in her work on justismiasis. Um, but, you know, that is kind of one of the things that we see being exported uh, around the world uh, by the People's Republic. Uh, and one venue for that exportation was programs of medical diplomacy, by which I mean the use of medical aid to shape transnational relationships. Um, so a bit of context, uh, after the Sino-Soviet split uh, around uh, the early 1960s, the PRC saw allies and was then called the non-aligned third world, the predominantly decolonized states of Africa, Southeast Asia, and Latin America, um, and specifically, uh, one of the key motivations for seeking allies was uh, competition between the PRC and the Republic of China on Taiwan for recognition as the sole legitimate government over both the mainland and the island of Taiwan. Uh, and so we see then the PRC employing medical diplomacy in service of this um, aim of Kind of building alliances and gaining recognition and legitimacy. Uh, and so we see then um, China sending medical teams and equipment and setting up student exchanges um, as a means of promoting um, its model of rural health as something that can be useful to um, these uh, so-called non-aligned states. Um, and so we see this happening, especially in Africa over the course of the later 1960s. Alicia Altorfer-Ong has a very good study of Tanzania that was really useful for me. Um, and we see essentially the uh, kind of promotion of this particular form of rural health um, and vaccines being an important part of this. Um, again, insofar as vaccines are something that can be moved, that can be transported um, and that provide a very clear and potent symbol um, of uh, kind of medical aid and uh, medical modernity. Uh, and so, you know, that's one way in which we see the PRC really building an international profile um, in terms of its uh, achievements and accomplishments uh, in health. 
At the same time, the PRC sought to promote its rural health systems in the field of international health. Um, so uh, really across the world in different ways. After the kind of period of rapprochement with the United States, especially in the early 1970s, we see uh, delegations coming from Europe and North America and being shown highly mediated uh, visions of the kind of rural health systems that uh, China uh, was sponsoring and that China was uh, promoting. And I think the thing to stress here is really that it was China's successes in what was called epidemic control that I think really helped provide convincing evidence that its rural health model was a viable one uh, and one that gained traction with a variety of stakeholders so that by the end of the 1970s, the World Health Organization cites China um, as a significant model for its new health policies of what it calls primary health care. And so successes in epidemic control are um, essentially kind of providing uh, evidence that China's model is one that works. And control of infectious diseases in turn, um, I suggest, is depending in part on mass vaccination against multiple illnesses, as well as things like clinical care, working quarantine systems, and other sanitary measures. Um, so if you look at um, kind of materials that discuss China as a model for kind of international health uh, in the 70s uh, by various health administrators um, working for uh, the WHO or kind of just contributing to the field of international health, um, you see consistently cited the fact that China has controlled infectious diseases within its borders as uh, one piece of evidence that its rural health systems are successful, that they are workable and viable. Um, and what's interesting, I think, is that in the history of global health, um, primary health care, as the WHO's approach kind of came to be known, um, this kind of grassroots rural health system, um, that's typically regarded as constituting what's called a horizontal approach to public health, um, one that involves uh, kind of grassroots connections and cooperations, one that uses um, kind of what's called appropriate technologies um, to try and uh, improve the health of as many people as possible. Um, that's a horizontal approach in contrast to what's called vertical approaches, approaches that are highly technological, top-down, and not necessarily sensitive to local attitudes and understandings. And traditionally, vaccines have actually been a canonical vertical approach. Um, in the kind of language and history of international health. So to me, it's really fascinating that the kind of successful promotion of the classic horizontal approach of primary health care um, in some ways can be uh, traced to depend on uh, successful epidemic control in China, which in turn depended on vaccination, historically understood as a vertical intervention. Um, and perhaps it simply speaks to the ways in which these different contrasting approaches actually have a lot more in common than one might think. Um, but I think it kind of speaks to also the significance in um, China's promotion of this rural health model um, and the particular view that it has of that relationship between um, state and people uh, and the ways in which that played out in global health. Absolutely, and it's um, it's a really momentous um, uh, relationship that uh, the WHO starts to to promote in terms of of um, of talking about China's successful 
epidemic control and you know horizontal approach to to public health um and then to to see how how that plays out and you know in in the world but also in different other countries um right uh, whether it's europe or you know it's it's latin america or it's uh, it's africa and you know the the connections that start to form from there and then our own understanding being um altered right um uh, to, to mm-hmm. grasp all of this and understand how how history is is being written um, in this way um, I mean I would love to ask more questions but I think we already <laughs> have taken a lot of your time so um, I was wondering um, whether you could tell us more about your current projects and what are you you working on right now sure well I've got um, two projects that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about Um one looking at the history of an educational project, the Institut Franco Chinois in the city of Lyon, um, between 1921 and 1950. Um, and it's a basically an institute that sought to educate Chinese students in technical disciplines. Um, and so I'm interested in learning more about this school, about the ways in which it might speak to questions in the history of science and technology, what role um, kind of these sorts of transnational educational exchanges might um, have played in kind of the establishment of um, scientific disciplines within China. And so that's something that I'm kind of hoping to um, be able to go and look at archives for quite soon. But I'm also working on uh, a much more long-term project that has to do with the civil history of civil aviation in China. Um, and that actually comes out of this project in really important ways because Um, Doing the research for this book really made me realize the significance of transportation and transportation technologies as a means for supporting a variety of other scientific projects in China. Um, I mean, vaccines don't get very far unless you put them on planes um, and uh, get them from one city to another. Um, The conditions under which vaccines are transported matters greatly. If they're not refrigerated, they can lose efficacy. And that's something that I see administrators worrying about quite a lot throughout the period under consideration. Um, And so that really made me wonder about the role of aviation um, in China, both as a technology that contributes to concepts of modernization and globalization in really interesting ways, but also as a technology that's also bound up with other histories of science and technology in the Chinese context. So how do um, airplanes and uh, the kind of work of civil aviation more broadly make it possible for other kinds of scientific disciplines and projects to develop in China? How do planes work as scientific instruments? How does building the infrastructure necessary for civil aviation rely on other disciplines and technological frameworks? Um, And how do we see the kind of co-construction of aviation with other forms of knowledge? Um, And I think it's particularly interesting in light of recent work in the history of science on questions of the global circulation of knowledge. So what does it mean then to study knowledge about the process of transportation and circulation itself? That's what I would be really interested in exploring more. That is fascinating, and I really look forward to reading more of your work and, um, you know, to, to, to see it come to light. Um, and I really want to thank you very much for talking to us today about your book, and I look forward to more conversations. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure uh, to hear these wonderful questions. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.